0: Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits. This week's episode is a special one, as we are episode number 100. And joining me today was Seth Godin. Seth is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and speaker. In addition to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, he's written 21 bestseller books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and and what not to do when it's your turn, and it's always your turn. In this week's episode, we discuss one of his more recent books called The Song of Significance, a New Manifesto for Teams, which is available on Amazon. Seth, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for leading uh, nonprofits. It's such important work. I'm actually not here to talk about my book. I'm here to talk about them and the change they're making in the world. So I'm, I'm glad you're here.
0: Awesome. To summarize, just make sure people are aware of the book, for those listeners who have not read it yet, it's basically a conversation about why work is the way it is, why it's gotten so bad, and what we can do to make it better. So I was hoping to start us off, you could maybe paint a picture of what is that, what does the landscape look like today in the work environment, not necessarily specific to nonprofits, but overall work in general?
1: Well, so work, modern work, is only a couple hundred years old. This idea that there's a factory and humans are a resource and there's an assembly line and there's a stopwatch and there's measures of productivity, that there are bosses who tell you what to do. They get to keep whatever is left over after they pay people as little as they can. That is fairly new. It is not part of the human condition. And what has happened in just the last few years, thanks to AI, thanks to distributed work, thanks to the rise of creative work, creating value, and factory work being a race to the bottom, is that high-performing organizations tend to be filled with people who are enrolled in the journey, where they are respected, where there is dignity, and where they are able to contribute. And so we're seeing this rising gap between the old model of, you can pick anyone and we're anyone, the race to the bottom, the idea that, we're just here to make a profit for somebody else. And
0: the race to the top, which I call significance, doing work that matters. So the two kinds of industries that you mention are the industrial capitalism or industrial industry and the market or significance industry. And the first one, the former, is more like, if I were to paint a more accurate picture, would be more like, um, and I think of Amazon for the most part, where everything is measured employees have to end up sometimes urinating in these containers because it's all about efficiency. It's about timing. It's about treating people like resources instead of like people versus the significance organization. The organization that's trying to implement significance treats people as actual people and are trying to solve problems. Would you like to add anything more to that before I move to the next point?
1: No, I think you absolutely nailed it. You know, There are hundreds of thousands of people who work at Amazon and In any given year, fifty of them have an idea that can change everything for them. But they waste the potential of so many other people because everyone's just sitting there worried about what the stopwatch is going to say.
0: Right, and even to go further, the, the the industrial market is more about like you wouldn't go there as an employee to feel fulfilled because of the conditions of the work conditions that you've been given uh you are limited there's not much room for creativity you're more like an order taker not an order giver or a contributor versus the the latter the significance market is more about being an equal contributor it's it's making sure that the former gets our basic needs met sure but we're missing that dignity and we're missing the agency which the latter does provide why do we allow organizations to take our agency and dignity i mean are we why are we allowing them and why are we settling well i don't think
1: we just allow them i think we often want them to because we've been indoctrinated from a really young age to ask, will this be on the test? How do I get an A? How do I avoid trouble? How do I avoid responsibility? Because that's the system. And if you've been indoctrinated in that for 15 or 20 years, it's no surprise that many people are drawn to that mindset where obedience to authority lets us off the hook. And if we can shift a little to the nonprofit thing here, you know, in the US, nonprofits get special stack, tax status. And the question is why? And my argument is it's because they're solving a worthwhile problem that the community will benefit from. But it hasn't been solved yet. If it had been solved, you wouldn't need to work on it. So the biggest challenge that nonprofits have is to accept the fact that they're going to try many new ways to solve a persistent problem until they solve it. So this whole idea of avoiding error, of maximizing productivity, doesn't make sense in a typical nonprofit because you're scientists, you're in a laboratory, that what it is to do this work is to explore the liminal stage between here and there, not produce
0: as many widgets per moment as you can. So are there, is, there, is there any overlap between nonprofits and the industrial market? Are they completely separate, like it's one or the other? Or do you think there are some methodologies, some structures, some strategies that nonprofits do can benefit from versus keeping it fully separate because nonprofits do, let's say, contribute more back to society. They want to create an environment and a culture that is more giving, more understanding versus and less efficient. Not necessarily less efficient, but less focused on efficiency. Right. So, this is a,
1: a key thing that I really want to address. I am not arguing that we should be soft. I'm not arguing that we should sit around the campfire and sing songs and that standards go down. I'm arguing the opposite that when we are working with other people who are engaged in the journey together, we don't criticize the worker, but we relentlessly criticize the work. That if I think about the Aravind Eye Hospital in India, now think about the population of New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles put together. That is how many people have avoided blindness because of this one eye hospital chain in India. The rigor that goes on at Aravind is spectacular. That the infection rate for eye surgery in rural India at an Aravind hospital is less. Than the infection rate in London. So nobody's being easy on anyone, but they are seeing the humans that are doing the work. So it is possible to obsess about productivity. It is possible to say we can deliver safe eye surgery for 1 the cost of having it done in Cleveland. And at the same time, produce a workplace where people can come alive. In fact, I think they go together. So no, this isn't an argument about efficiency. It's an argument about
0: humanity. I love your part about, in the book, you talk about culture, how building a culture, that the responsibilities of leaders is really about creating a culture, and that's more important than strategy or tactics. I love the concept, and I'm curious to know, know, how can nonprofits apply that in in their world? So I've worked
1: very closely with perhaps a dozen significant nonprofits over the last 10 or 20 years. And when you walk into the room at Endeavor or at Build On or at Acumen or at Charity Water, you notice something about culture. I've also worked with some of the most famous giant nonprofits in the US, and it made my eyes bleed because the bureaucracy (laughs) was king. And I don't work with those folks anymore because they have turned into faceless bureaucracies that are simply doing what they did 10 or 20 or 40 or 50 years ago with bequests from people who died from a disease that they're supposed to be addressing. And I think the difference is profound. That, you know, if I pick Acumen, Acumen has put a quarter of a billion dollars to work in just 20 years and helped 100 million of the poorest people on earth. Charity Water, Scott has led... The fundraising of a quarter of a billion dollars in the last 20 years. And there are millions of people who are alive because of that work. From zero, that's a culture choice. That is not a strategy choice or a tactics choice.
0: I love the story. It's not quite a nonprofit story, but the story of this rising tide car wash. Yeah. How they employ people who are a bit handicapped mentally or physically, but they empower them and they create these these four pillars that basically separate end up separating this car wash from all other car washes. The retention rates, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they're off the charts. Customers love coming back to them. And it's nothing to do with price, because I agree with you, if, if price was the only consideration, then you just choose, as a customer, you choose the lowest price in your neighborhood, and you call it a day, and you forget about it. But because they created these four pillars, and I'll read them out to you, it's it's a thriving business. They they you wrote that when they start a new car wash, they can become very profitable very quickly. So the idea is it's a feeling of safety, a culture of accountability, clear purpose, and customer love. And I think for a lot of these, they, I mean, this is like a one for one parallel to a lot of nonprofits as well. I think these are four things that nonprofits can and should implement from the get go.
1: Right. And so you know what the team at Rising Tide did is they didn't say. Our job is to wash cars, and by the way, let's figure out a way to treat people well. They said, my brother has autism, and he's on the neurodivergent spectrum. He can't get a job anywhere. Let's build a place where people like him can find fulfillment. Oh, and by the way, one of the ways we can do that is by washing cars. And the thing about washing your car, as you pointed out, is people go to a cheaper one, or they could do what I do, which is not get their car washed. And so what you're selling is a luxury item. And luxury items are a story. And the story of getting your car washed at Rising Tide is that you're a good person. And the story is that you are being served by people who care and you care about them. And that is at the heart of what Rising Tide does. The the clean cars is a mere side effect. And most of the nonprofits that I am lucky enough to work with are doing really significant, important work for people who need it. But at the same time, they're creating an environment where the people who do the work gladly come to do the work, even if they could make more money doing something else.
0: Yeah, a lot of people work with nonprofits not for the money, but because of, they feel they're having an impact with the community. So definitely true there. Shifting then the conversation to more, what are some tactics, strategies that nonprofits can implement I mean, there's a lot of them in the book, but I'll, I try to highlight only a few of them. The first one I, I loved was the fact that turnover is okay. And I, if you don't mind, I'm going to read the quote that you wrote. because the idea, Well, before I do that, before, the idea is, in order to build a significant organization or organization of significance, it has to be a mutual respect. It has to be a mutual beneficial relationship. It's not just the worker benefiting from the workie, but it's it's a mutual one. And the minute it doesn't, it, it ceases to become useful. So the quote is, and this is the perspective of the nonprofit, join us if it works for you, leave us when it doesn't. And if you leave with more knowledge than when you came, it's a symptom we did well together. That is beautiful.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I still agree with it a year and a half later. I think that particularly in nonprofits, turnover should be a goal. It shouldn't be something to be afraid of. That being able to sit down with one another and re-enlist in this journey is critical. That in the old days, we worried a lot about knowledge walking out the door. But the knowledge is all in slack now. And so, yeah, there's a cost to turnover because it gets turbulent. And there is the challenge of picking relationships up where we left off. But at the same time, There's nothing about your organization that's the same as it was 10 years ago. So if it's going to change again in the next 10 years, why not do it with intent? Why just let it happen randomly when someone finally discovers they have an option and they leave? Let's do it on purpose because we don't get tomorrow over again. And the opportunity to have the right people in the room for the right reason is spectacular.
0: There are a lot of nonprofits that fear turnover. And I think you underlined, or I will underline the comment you made. It has to be somewhere, documented somewhere. You don't want to lose too much when that person walks out the door because it should be in a central repository of some kind, you know, process storage, wherever it might be, so that the, the information is not lost completely. But you do, and I agree, it's okay to let that person go when it doesn't mutually benefit each person, the, the organization and the, the person.
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. A friend of mine worked at a commercial bank years ago. And in the U.S., you must take two weeks of vacation in a row if you work at a commercial bank. And the reason they do that is to keep uh, internal employees from turning into folks who are kiting checks and keeping embezzlement hidden. If you're gone for two weeks, things are going to rise to the surface. And Tom Peters used to write about the idea that you should have a resume clinic. I'd modernize it to a LinkedIn clinic every six months where you challenge your people to upgrade, update their LinkedIn profile. And folks say, well, why would I do that? Then folks will leave and get a better job. And the response is, well, would you rather have them stay because they can't find a better job? The whole point is you want people who are
0: there because they want to be there, not because they have no other options. Second point is about vocation skills. And a lot of us, a lot of organizations at least, measure people based on proxies that's the word you used where you know how many words can you type a minute how many donors can you get how much can you fundraise which are important but they're a side effect or a portion of the overall skill set that a person brings to the table that these vocation skills or non vocation skills these soft skills that we call them are in a sense the real skills the, the people skills the communication skills the leadership skills so i'm curious to know like why do we call them soft skills if they're really real skills?
1: Well, proxies are everywhere we look. Calories are a proxy for is this food healthy or not because it's hard to just keep all these ideas in our head. And I can go down a long list of proxies. Some of them are very noxious and dangerous. We use someone's height or skin color as a proxy for whether we can trust them, which is absurd. And at work, under Henry Ford and Frederick Taylor, the proxies were fairly accurate that the faster they could make a model t of suitable quality the more money they would make so all you have to do is measure how fast you can make the car and you're maybe onto something at least in the short run but the proxies start to fall apart when work gets complicated and you know so if i look at the proxy of how many sales pitches did you do today in the fundraising department what i'm doing is encouraging you to spam people I'm not encouraging you to build actual useful long-term relationships that are going to help this nonprofit be transformed. And just because it's hard to measure doesn't mean it's important. Just because it's easy to measure doesn't mean it's important. We have to get really clear about why are we measuring this to begin with? And what we see about real skills, some people call them soft skills, is it's hard to measure humility, empathy, connection sense of humor, loyalty, leadership. But just because it's hard to measure doesn't mean we should ignore it.
0: I remember when I did my psychology class many years ago in university, they warned us that beautiful people get ahead only because they're beautiful. That again, it's a proxy for because they're beautiful and they must have everything going for them, we are more likely to promote them. Same thing with tall people. You mentioned that more, I don't remember what percentage, but there's a high number of CEOs that are above six feet tall because we attribute other characteristics to people who are very tall. And it's uh, even a the halo effect, which is if you're near a person like that, you feel like you are uh, benefiting from, <laughs> from their yeah. Um, attributes.
1: Yeah, and we should name it. We should announce it. We should get really good at celebrating somebody who does a hard thing, a thing that doesn't ordinarily lead to applause, a thing that actually connects to what our organization is about, as opposed to consistently giving the best rewards to people who do stuff that maybe comes naturally to them, but isn't going to get us to where our nonprofit seeks to go.
0: And I've seen this in too many cases where there's someone who is very, very good at their work. You know, They're able to produce amazing results, but they're awful to work with. And that can have a a big impact to the rest of the organization. It can bring people down. They could be an energy vampire or just makes work less fun. Even though they're good at very specific things, their overall contribution to an organization might actually be more negative than positive. And it's, it's about identifying those people and realizing that there's a lot more importance on all of these other skills, these real skills. But then how do we, if we can't measure them so easily, is it just a matter of trying to, Change our bias to say, you know, these are important. We need to identify which ones are truly important to us and then try to find ways to measure them. Or are there other ways to actually measure them?
1: Well, you know what's really hard? What's really hard is getting 20 million solar lanterns distributed in rural India. That's so much more difficult than being able to look somebody in the eye and talk to them honestly about what matters around here. So you already signed up to do difficult work. The thing is that there's a culture in many nonprofits of, I better not say the wrong thing. I better not rub somebody the wrong way because we didn't make the agreements to begin with about why we're here, what we're measuring, and what's important. Instead, because we call it a job, people are looking for a sinecure, a safe place to hide, a certain sort of cultural validation in and out of the office. But what we really want is a mission, and we want to be on a mission with other people who want to go on the mission, people we trust, people who trust us. And we should do that on purpose. So, I'm not going to try to say it's easy. It's not. It's really hard, but it's important.
0: One of the next points you raise that I found to be quite interesting was the imposter syndrome, which we all have experienced in some way or another, the idea that we're doing something that we haven't quite done before so we're not quite sure if it's going to work. And That's a story that's that's been told multiple times, but your perspective on it, how useful imposters can actually create the change that you need. People who are used to breaking the frontier or being pioneers, breaking new grounds, can be actually quite useful in getting your organization to the next level. And I was curious to know if there's any way that nonprofits can identify these people and leverage those talents to get them to that next level.
1: Yeah, so... I think there might be a few politicians in my country who don't have imposter syndrome, but everybody else who's doing work does. (laughs) And people say to me, how do I get rid of imposter syndrome? How do I stop feeling like a fraud? And my answer is, if you're working hard on a good project, of course you feel like a fraud, because you are one. That If you show up to lead anything at a nonprofit, which, as we said earlier, is trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved yet, of course... You're an imposter because it hasn't been solved yet. You're going out to raise money to solve a problem you haven't solved yet. You are hiring people to join you on a journey that you're not sure is going to work. So when you feel this feeling, it's a good thing. It's a way of knowing that you're on to something. And so we can name it and then we can forgive ourselves. And we can say, I haven't solved it yet, but I'm going to be clear about who it's for, what it's for, the change we're seeking to make. And we're gonna check in honestly about the progress we're making. That is useful work.
0: And I would add to that, it doesn't always go away. I mean, no matter how experienced you are, no how many how, how many awards you've won, I, I've heard even that like Rihanna, for example, back in the day, she was also feeling imposter syndrome. No matter how successful she was, she was still feeling it. And that is something to notice that it's okay to be, and, it, and you should be okay to be, or find a way to be okay with imposter syndrome. Recognize it, identify it, like you said, and then work with it. And just the idea of being, and I'm a big advocate of this, is, is breaking that comfort zone, is getting out of the, the normal routine that you normally have, trying something new. And if you keep on doing that over the course of a year or multiple years, and then you look back, who you are today and what your organization has done as a result of it will be tremendously large compared to if you just stayed within that comfort zone within that particular wheelhouse that you're so comfortable with. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah, if There's nobody who goes to a
1: training coach, uh, a running coach and says, can you teach me how to run a marathon without getting tired? Because that's absurd. If you're running the marathon properly, you're going to get tired. The difference between the people who finish and the people who don't is they figure out where to put the tired. And the same thing is true with imposter syndrome. You train. You get better at engaging with it. But it's never going to go away, not if you're doing your work well.
0: Next point was about page 19, the, the page 19 metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe this comes from your previous book or a previous book. The, actually, it wasn't really your book. It was more of a collection of, of authors writing the book, The Carbon Almanac. Yep. And the idea, the concept behind it, uh, the golden nugget in there, is basically saying, as a person, produce the best you can, but be okay. Be aware that it's probably not the best anyone can, can, and that's okay. Consider it to be like a first draft. And then have peers review it, modify it, improve it. So the, the slogan is, here, I made this, please make it better. And I just want to mention the four steps in this page 19 thinking, which is basically simplify the problem, clarify the goal, tirage and figure out what to do next, and then decide to ship the work. The idea is that there's this, this process of improvement, refinement as a team and not as a one-person start-to-finish, you know, start the draft, edit it, publish it themselves, but have this team of people build something together and that the, the result of that work, the result of those refinements will be infinitely better than what you could ever accomplish on your own. Yeah, I think there's a
1: mindset shift that I'm proposing here. You know, years ago, when I was running yo which was one of the first internet companies, in one week we hired 17 salespeople And I went out and I bought 17 Radio Shack cassette recorders for $39 each. And I had everybody record all their sales calls for a week. And then I said, uh, phone calls. And I said, all right, bring your best recording, your best call to this meeting. And we went around and each person played us five minutes of their best work. And then other people told them how it could have been better. In a typical bureaucracy this would be a meeting filled with fear because you feel like you're being judged and you're at risk and you might even get fired. And so it's unusual at a nonprofit for people to eagerly share, here's a transcript of what I just did. Here's an approach to how I just approached this. Can you make this better? We only want the review to come once a year, the annual review, which is so stupid. But if we're really leaning into solving the problem, then let's take advantage of this moment to not criticize the worker. It's not okay to criticize the worker, but to relentlessly criticize the work. To be able to say, here, I made this, and to have somebody else say, what would happen if we did this? Would it be even better?
0: It's really a shame that nonprofits don't share more amongst each other. This is some kind of situation which I can't quite figure out yet. They they, they want to hold their cards close to their chest, so to speak, and they don't want to help each other in some way. And there are people, of course, trying to break those those trends, but there, there's definitely something to the effect of not being as open as they could be and not being able to benefit from being open. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts towards that.
1: Yeah. So again, back to this idea of market share or solving the problem. One of the things I encourage the folks at Acumen to do is view themselves as people who publish a journal to be able to say, here's everything we know about this problem. If you can steal our our ideas, please do. And sometimes the ideas get stolen in a negative way, like the way that um, microfinance was misused in India by some. But in general, you're going to solve the problem when you are comfortable enough with other people doing it, not you. And that only happens when you show your work. And that is how we advanced so much in physics and biology and Genetics, right? Everybody who's working on decoding DNA publishes their work, and then other scientists advance it. Well, we ought to be able to do the same thing with any nonprofit. Publish your
0: work, let people steal your ideas, and have them make it better. Sometimes it feels, as I was reading your manifesto, that it's more targeted toward the managers and not the employees or the, the volunteers working at a nonprofit or any other organization And I was wondering, aside from asking their managers to buy the book, which, of course, they should, what can employees do to help promote this kind of change, this revolution? I'm really glad you're bringing this up. There's a big difference between managers and leaders.
1: Managers have authority. They're on the org chart. They get to fire people. Leaders are doing something voluntary. Leaders are able to say, I'm going over there. Who wants to come? Organizations are not going to become significant because managers announce it's the new policy. It's going to happen because leaders, regardless of their job title, show up and say, follow me. And so you can be the newest employee. You can be the low-ranking barista. You can be somebody in an organization who's not on the masthead, and you can start changing the culture because you can lead. And I can't, describe to you just how deeply the indoctrination goes in our culture, that that's not allowed. But in fact, it is allowed, and it's where change almost always comes from. So those
0: were the topics I was hoping to cover today. Thank you so much for that. How can people find your book? So I've written 9,000 blog posts at Seths.blog,
1: which is a lot of blog posts. If you go to song, I've summarized some of the ideas of the book. But people don't take me at my word, but I mean it. It's fine with me if you don't buy the book. I don't write books for people to buy them. My goal is for people to take ideas and run with them, to teach them to other people, to make a ruckus, to make a difference, to be missed if you are gone. And we probably don't need a slightly more efficient pesticide company. But what we do need are nonprofits that do work worth doing. So if this resonates with you, I hope you'll take the ideas and run with them.
0: Well, I will definitely plug your book because it's a, it was a worthy read. And it's, what I liked about it is that it's a very easy read. It's not like a thousand-page book. It, it reads very well. I grew all the great ideas. I mean, a few of them we discussed here today, but there's a lot more that can be beneficial to, to nonprofits. So I encourage you to do so. Seth, thank you so much. This has been an honor.
1: Well, for me too. And thank you for taking the time and for showing up the way you do.
0: All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.